to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. We are going to be um, picking back up in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Brad and Matt and Beth, thank you guys so much. Um, Brad, thank you for sharing that. Uh, um, Just kind of fits right along with um, what we're talking about today. Um, as Brad mentioned, just um, you don't kind of plan out the path. You don't kind of plan out the journey. Um, and you're, you're trying to just follow faithfully. And so sometimes in following God faithfully, um, you get to places where it's not mountain peaks. In fact, it's valleys. And there's um, turns and twists. And then there's places where you fall and get injured. And like Brad was saying, it's easy to turn at that point and go, hold it, I thought I was following you. How did I end up injured like this? Why did you lead me to a place where I ended up falling naturally and now I'm injured? And so you can feel like, where is God? If you're a good God, so this questioning comes up in us, why did you let this happen? And in some smaller degrees, and some greater degrees, some some things it may be relationships, maybe your family, it may be um, life circumstances, a quick shift about your job, uh, a quick shift in, in a family's health, um, a quick shift, especially if if you have children, and something that quickly happens with them, whether it's an illness that pops up or a diagnosis that you just thought for two years was something, and some big diagnosis happens. Or maybe just just life's um, long plan and things happen. And, and so we, we kind of wonder on this path, how did this happen? This wasn't what I kind of signed on for. And so um, we're going to see the mixture of all of that in that section. That's like Brad said, um, for him, for five years. Um, and sometimes those big events, when you lose a child, that's that's life-altering. you know. And so and sure, there's, there's the grieving process and all that, but it's easy to stand on the outside and just to look at people and go, well, you know God loves you, and just give these little propositional truths. And we've never experienced that. But then when we see other people, we think, oh, it's been a year. They should be fine. And so maybe they are fine in lots of ways, but there's also lots of days and lots of hours where there's a lot going on. And so um, when we think through that, um, we've got to really be careful not to just be judgmental and, and not to look at people's life and just think, um, man, why don't you just do this? Why don't you just do better at this? And so all of that we'll see with this group of 2 Corinthians. Um, this, this big warning, the big thrust of this, the main, the main emphasis today is this warning about false teachers. Um, and so I want to walk us through what Paul's dealing with um, very clearly, but then I want us to see also in our own culture, in our own day, how that applies. So let me do a little intro here. Uh, Paul has made a turn in the letter. Now, I do want to let you know that this is a big turn. And if this was um, being, if you were the original crowd, they had already received previously, not just the book, the letter of 1 Corinthians, they had received a harsh letter 
from Paul, that we don't have that letter. It's not in the Bible, and it's not that you know we were supposed to have it, and like God lost it, or God wasn't sovereign or powerful. It was specifically more of a personal thing. If I just chose to write to a few of you, and it was very, um, very pointed and stuff, and so it maybe just didn't apply to the rest of the church, the general church, so that's why we don't have that letter in God's sovereignty, but it was a harsh letter. And so this is the turn in chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13, where Paul gets a little uh, rough with them. And so and he's even kind of sarcastically. And so his tone would probably be uh, kind of, oh, you, you want to play around? And so not, and so we think of, you know, Jesus always just nice. And there's that one incident where he turned the tables over, but, you know, in a minute he had a quiet time and went back to Jesus 2.0 and just, you know, always gracious. He would never do anything. We, we don't think of Jesus being in the Old Testament with, uh, you know, the Father and the Spirit um, in, in, in the days of Noah, right? Because Jesus was there also, right? Like, all of them. We, we got to bring death to all of them. They're all turning against us. That was Jesus, right? So we don't like to think of him that way, and we don't like to think of God being the way, but here's Paul following Jesus, and he has to be very harsh with them. And so um, that happens in this letter. He's taken off the gloves, not because he wants to injure them, but because they are misleading people with false teaching about eternity and God. So we need to see what Paul is addressing specifically with the Corinthians and these false teachers, but we need to take time to consider ourselves. Am I susceptible to false teaching and belief? And so not, not the type of, hey, there's another God other than Jesus, because we'd probably go, I'm probably not going to listen to this guy. I'm not going over to his house for a small group, right? Or Jesus didn't raise from the grave, or Jesus wasn't God, or the, it's not a trinity, it's, you know, it, it's only this one God, and there's not a trinity. Like, we would probably go, there's some problems there. Um, all those type things we would, we would argue with. Jesus wasn't fully man. Jesus wasn't fully God. We would see that. But can I discern when a pastor or a preacher is using the words of Scripture, maybe dropping in bits of Scripture, but not really teaching God's intent of the Scripture? So that's one of the safeties of going through a book of the Bible and just kind of trying to stay in the context and trying to fit that letter together. That's why kind of preaching through a book, and it's fine to do the topical series where you, you want to do four lessons on prayer, and you go to some Proverbs or some um, you know some Psalms about prayer or a New Testament or an Old Testament example, and that's fine to kind of go and pick those, and that's, that's really good, and that's biblical, and it's godly. Uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit better and safer to stay in the context of a scripture, um, so there's a, there's a danger sometimes of twisting what, what the author's intent, not only God as the author, but also the writer of that book. Um, am I aware, another just idea is, am I aware of pastors or preachers who take away from the offensiveness of the gospel? So you got two different kinds of things that go on, both in the Corinthians and in our churches, where we either take away from the gospel, make softening it, or we add to it, stiffening it, making it more difficult. And so what I mean by that is, so people that take away from the offensiveness of the gospel, they don't, they, they know that people don't want to hear that they're sinners. They, they don't want to bring up what this, this word today is saying about the potential for your heart, that this may be you. So what we want to talk about instead is positive stuff. So, so they want to make it real palatable and acceptable and easy to swallow. Now, does, do Americans like that? American Idol. Who doesn't want to be an American star? Who doesn't want to be? I mean, tens of millions of people want to know I am a star worshipped by, by tons of people. Um, social media. 
I want to have likes and to be followed and to be influencing tons of people. I, I want to be loved. And so just like I talk with 10-year-olds and 12-year-olds and 14-year-olds, and uh, they don't love you. You've got 300 likes or 3 million likes. They don't know you. You know, they, they don't really love you because they, they're not around you when you make mistakes and hurt people and stuff. And so we have this desire in us to be loved. And so some preachers go, I know Americans love that. So let me cater a message that is soft on sin and makes them the kind of the center of the message to where their self-esteem, their pride, how great they are. And so they, they soften the gospel because the gospel has good news based off of the bad news. And so if you take away the bad news, you don't need a great Savior. You just need to be a better you. So then other people add to it. So are you aware of, and notice when, when pastors or preachers add to the gospel, and you may think, well, I don't know, I haven't seen this, adding more and more strict rules and expectations and lifestyle rules. So sometimes it's just the given. So we've been around churches. Uh, one time I went to this pastor's conference, and it was a whole bunch of us guys from a church, and we, there was about seven or eight of us, and we went and we sat through these, this whole day of teaching. This guy was a missionary overseas. He was in unreached people groups. He was training these pastors and all this stuff in the secret church, and so it was incredible all day long. Like I couldn't even take notes as fast as he was talking, and then uh, later on, the wives had drove down. It was like five or six hours away, and the wives all get there, and we only had one kid at that time, and he was two. And he was just kind of just just running. He wasn't running like tearing up the place or throwing, you know, purple Kool-Aid on the carpet. He's just playing like a two-year-old. And I see Jamie's face, and she is just like, and her face was screaming, get over here now. And I was like, oh, my gosh, something's happened on the drive down. These women, you know, are witches or something or what's happened. And so I go over there and find out that Jamie informs me we have a two-year-old. And he's not sitting in a chair silently meditating on the Lord. And that's what good kids do. And so as we walk in, she was there less than 30 minutes. And the tone of the church, the other moms, the other women, just their looks as he kind of just ran around. Not tearing anything up, but like that's not what kids do. When we come to the church building, we honor God. Our kids sit still in the chair beside us. And she had picked up this vibe real quickly. And so then we go, like we had a dinner immediately. So we go, and so she's trying to communicate this. And it's steeped in legalism and just, and just outer expectation, externals. And, and sure enough, as we go to this little dinner, which I'm just learning about all this stuff, he literally stands up in the chair and is like leaning on the, you know, on the table. And, like, and she is like just freaking it like, oh my gosh. And people there, they're just staring at us like we have, like he's up there peeing on the table or something. You know, I was like, this is, this is like, he's just acting like a two-year-old. And, and, and so anyway, we had this huge thing. And so you may have been in places like that. What, what had happened there? They had, they had created a, a place where little kids, the lifestyle or, or the, the rules and the list for little kids was a certain one-fits-all specific behavior. So they'd added to the gospel, instead of a gospel of grace of, I expect two-year-olds and eight-year-olds and 14-year-olds to be like eight-year-olds and four-year-olds and 14-year-olds. 
doesn't mean I give them spray paint cans and, and alcohol, right? And so th- that doesn't mean, oh, oh, you just let them do whatever. No, but, but they're kids, and they're little boys, and they're, they're, they're wanting to run and play, and they're going to be loud sometimes. And so they weren't disrupting or anything. And so certain types of lifestyles. So you may have been around places like that where, oh, wow, that's exactly how rigid and how formal and how perfect everything had to be. So that's adding a list to the gospel. That's adding beyond. So sometimes we have good procedures. Hey, um, we're, we're not going to let our kid have a phone till he's 15 years old. We're not going to let a kid have a phone till he's 10 years old. We're not going to let a kid have a phone till he's 6 years old. Now, you may land on any, either one of any of those, right? And you may judge the other one as stupid or foolish. But you know that the Bible doesn't give a rule on that one, right? Like, there's some six-year-olds that might could be fine with that, and it wouldn't be a big deal. Or some 10-year-olds that might be fine with that. Or some 15-year-olds that couldn't even handle it, right? And so if you have a rule that now is passed down through the small groups or the teaching or the, the parent equipping class to where, here's what we do. Does everyone get that? Everyone understand? Here's what women behave like. Here's what women are allowed to do and aren't allowed to do. Here's what men do. And so you can see that that creates adding to the gospel, and it creates a culture of that. And so um, that's adding to the gospel. People are confused on grace. They, They may speak of it, they may mention it when the scriptures mentioned. They, they say that they love it, but really they don't have an idea about grace. Um, am I aware of self-help psychology that's used by famous pastors who began to kind of switch the Jesus coming for lost souls for a Jesus who came to make you happy and fulfilled and to feel like you are killing it for God? Because that feels good as Americans, right? So that's what we're going to be seeing here. So let's read through um, 1 through 15. We're not going to be able to hit all of 1 through 15, but I want us to read through this together. I mean, again, Paul's coming down pretty harsh. may not be as clear to us, but if you were receiving this after the other harsh letter, you would see that there's a turn here. So in uh, chapter 11, he says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one that you received, or if you receive a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you, I was in need. I didn't burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia, remember that's the poor crowd, they supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. 
And what, I, what I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So Father, we need the spirit that Paul just spoke of. The spirit of truth that guides us, that we first accepted. We need Jesus of the Bible, not a version of Jesus. A Jesus product that's more about us than him. And we need the true gospel. And God, that true gospel, and that true spirit, and that true Jesus, he meets us in times where we are high and happy and successful and killing it in life. And he meets us in the lowest of times, in brokenness, in darkness, in caves, when, when all of life seems that it's gone. We need you to show us how we're easily deceived. We need you to show us things that are misleading our hearts. We need you to show us how we can swerve away from being completely captivated in him, from a pure and devoted life in Christ. So would you help us to do that, being led by the Spirit now? In your name we pray, amen. So if um, there's anything that I would say, man, this is what not only America, but Tulsa in particular needs, um, it would be this understanding here. So as we go through this, I, I want you to know this is, I, I would love to spend four weeks just on this. I'd love to have a conference in Tulsa one day on this, just another Jesus. And I've already got the speaker guys picked out. I like, I know who's got some great voices on this. In fact, some of the stuff that we're going to be bringing out today, uh, Michael Horton. So if you've never seen this, it's Christless Christianity. It's a book by Michael Horton. Um, the Alternative Gospel of the American Church. So I'd strongly suggest you to get this. I would love everyone in Tulsa to read that book. And that's he, he's just addressing it and diagnosing it at the time. So he is, he is not like, he's not even putting in his, here's what we need to fix it. He's just saying, I want you to understand this. Uh, let me give you my diagnosis at this point. And so um, um, I would encourage you to get that. So Paul here, when he goes into this idea, he's going he's gonna to break through some things. He's going to get very specific. Um, and I want us to get very specific, and I, I think I'm going to be able to maybe show you the way that works itself out in practical application in some of the things that we very well accept. As Paul says here, you, you guys are putting up with it easily. So as he goes in, he says, um, I, I would ask you just to bear with me in a little foolishness. He, he's just being sarcastic. He's actually saying, hey, actually, let me kind of play this foolish role because you've been allowing these foolish guys to bring in all kinds of foolishness, and you've put up with it. So he's kind of throwing on this sarcastic idea. Um, uh, do, do you see how foolish some of you have been because of the stuff that we've shared with you and that you've walked away with, and, and they're boasting, they're foolish boasting? Surely you'll let me kind of just foolishly boast, right? Um, so I want you to see how foolish this is, that this Jesus that they presented to you, that the power of this spirit that, that you've now laid down, the true gospel that you've walked away from. So Paul's desire is this, this 
concern and this desire to see them truly being devoted to Christ. So we see that. He says, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin. So Paul sees himself as kind of the, the, the one in between, the middleman between the groom, Christ, and the bride, the, the body of Christ. He says, when, when Christ comes back, I want you to be presented to him as a pure, devoted bride. Um, and he's kind of hinting to them, um, I thought that you found the groom, Christ, worthy of that. I, th- I thought you fell in love with him and saw him as beautiful. What's happened? What's changed? Has he changed? Think through that for our American church. Think that for yourself. When you first learned of and accepted Christ, there may have been this time of just like, oh man, I've got to rid my life of sin. I've got to stay away and flee from those things. I want to be devoted. I want to study the Bible. I want to be in church all the time. I want to be a part of this body of people. Every time around, I'm growing all this. And then three years goes by, or sometimes three months, or 10 years. And now, it's not quite that excitement. It's not quite that devotion. It's not quite that um, captivation. We've become very familiar and comfortable with a certain version of Jesus. Almost kind of like a one of those little bobbleheads that now you've put a glass case around them, and, and they're there. It, it's, a, it's an image of that, but, but like he's kind of just almost useless. And we wouldn't want to say that to his face, but sometimes our life actually reveals it. Like he, he's on the shelf over there, and, and there's times we make turn back to that in, in low times when we're not strong enough or something hits our life, and now we go back to the little case with the bobblehead Jesus. But for the most part, I, I'm getting through life on my own, and I'm, I'm strong enough to do that. And so you're going to see that even churches will even lean us that way. So these Corinthians, they had a tendency of an initial acceptance and attraction to Jesus, but over time, he just wasn't that helpful. Anyone ever get to that spot? that you bought into the Christian thing, but over time it, it just wasn't what it, you thought it was going to be. Maybe the early years of intense growth and desire and enjoyment, but now years later you're kind of just stuck just going through the motion. You don't want to completely bail on it, but felt that you really did give it a good shot. Maybe got hurt some inside the church. So why give so much energy to something that really doesn't help out. Um, I would suggest for all of us that that's, a not, that's not a lacking Jesus, but it's our hearts that are slowing, are slowly growing cold. Other things, easier things, more entertaining things, distractions, other pursuits. And I think it's very common in the church. And then you have two years of a pandemic where 65% still have learned that I really didn't need that gathering that I went to. I I really didn't need that. We've been able to do some other things, and we're still doing this stuff, and I've still got bobblehead Jesus over here under the little glass case, and he's going to be there. He'll help us if something happens, but man, we've got a lot of freedom. We've got a lot of stuff that we found that we can do. How did Satan first deceive Eve? Notice what Paul goes to in this. He wants them to see, so if that's happening, if your heart's being kind of softened, if your heart's being kind of cold, Look to the first story, the first bride. He just said, I betroth you to this. Let me go back to the first bride and see how she was misled. Notice this connection there. How was Eve misled? Was she misled by um, um, Satan coming and saying, this God is fake. This God is wanting to harm you. 
do not believe in this God. No, he come with flattering words. He, he, uses, he uses very um, deceptive schemes, just like we just sang. It's very subtle. It's tiny little increments off from the truth. Just as if we were here in Tulsa, and we, we were getting in a car, and we were going to head to the beach in, in Destin, and if we, we made a, a line down there, and then there were just little incremental paths that took us away from that path, just incremental, just tiny. We just took a left here when we were supposed to go to the right. We just ended up just a quarter of a mile off on this, and took a left again, and took a left again, and you keep following that, just little incremental steps, and you'll never end up in Destin, right? You'll never be on the path that you're supposed to be on, and you'll never get to that destination. And so it's very subtle. It's tiny little things. And so he, he wanted them to see, just like Eve, your thoughts are being led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So just like the Corinthians, this type of deception, we don't see it. That's the whole idea of being deceived, right? We get that, right? Um, it, it's subtle also. So it's subtle and it's deceptive. It, it happens without you realizing it. So and I had some characteristics. So notice uh, the characteristics up there for this church. This is the Corinthian church experience. They had um, this idea that, first of all, the visible characteristics People were gathering for church. People are smiling. People are handshakes. People are greeting people at the door. There's donuts probably. Um, there's, they're gentle. They're not overtly like just hitting people in the face when, when you get to the building, right? So it, it looks like a church service. The audible characteristics. What do people hear? God language is being used. Reading parts of a letter. Reading from scriptures. Talking about God. Talking about Jesus. Um, they were spokesmen, probably saying to people, God wants this out of your life. God wants you to do this. And then add the supernatural even. So remember, this was a big place where the spiritual gifts, and we, we see that, right? There's some certain places where you, know, you kind of come and you do your thing, but then there's some places where, like, man, the Spirit hits. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost comes every week, and people are bouncing off the wall and screaming and running around, and people are falling out, like all these huge signs. There's miracles every week, and we will stay here on Sunday night until some miracles start happening, until some supernatural signs hit, and that, that, that's what was happening there. So there's all these things. So it looks like God is moving here. Are people biblically discerning enough to know and decipher when wrong content or wrong methods are being used in churches? Are people able to, uh, to discern unbiblical teaching that is more about man and your experience than about just God himself and the gospel? Um, I was reading this week in a devotional about spiritual health, and the author was talking about this same tendency that Paul's addressing here, things that deceive and lead us astray and away from a deeper faith. And he asked this question, if a prayer at the end of the day was, Father, show me the activities and decisions and priorities and relationships that are not what you want for me. Father, show me the activities and decisions priorities, and relationships that are not what you want for me. Um, so being led astray, deceived, it's subtle, tiny little misleadings. It's deceptive. No one's going to come out and just say, hey, I really want to occupy some of your time and lead you away from Christ. Teachers in the church, they're not just going to say, I, I, we want to lead you away from Christ and the gospel. So that's not what happens. Friends, relationships, activities, decisions. Hey, God's just blessed us. Man, man our, our job, we've just doubled in our income. So now, we, man, we've never been able to do this, so we're just going to buy this place, 
And then it has this, this boat. And we were never able to have this, this expensive um, golf membership. And now, man, well, now we've, God's blessed us so much, we got to spend time on the boat. And we got to spend time at the golf course because God's blessed with it. It'd be stupid. I'd be a bad steward. I'd be a bad steward if now that God's blessed us with all this and now we're kind of obligated to do all these things. And I just don't have time for any of you. God's blessed us. Blessed to be a blessing, right? And so that, that sells. That, that's American culture. That's what we do. And so um, subtle deception. So you've seen little kids um, when that kid, a toddler, let's say a two- or three-year-old, um, they get something that they're not supposed to have. So let's say a, a, a toddler gets a, a sharp knife, right? So like when our kids were two and three, we had a 10-minute time limit for kids to play with the knives. That's all they got is 10 minutes with knives. And so um, I'm joking. No one even laughed. And so um, they, when you have rules and they get a hold of something they're not supposed to have, and you go, oh, no, 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 you can't have that. You can't play with that. Um, do they ever thank you for, for, for the work that you're doing or thank you for your, your loving uh, discipline and loving protection or loving limiting that goes on? They don't do that. When, when uh, they're going through that, they're thinking that their little toddler God day of them building their own king, getting what they want, they're, they're playing toddler God. They throw a fit when you don't give them what they want. Fast forward when preteens and teens, um, the same thing that happens with them. Um, they're asking the same thing. They're, they're wanting to create their own little kingdom, their own little place. Um, when they're trying to get their own way, they, they don't come to you thanking you when, when they're into relationships or starting behaviors or actions that are dangerous, they're not, they're not, they're not thinking that they're, they're making foolish decisions, right? Um, they're thinking, man, I want to decide how I spend my time. I want to decide what and when I eat. I want to decide when I sleep. I want to decide what activities I deem appropriate, who I should hang with. And they don't realize it, but they're trying to construct their own little kingdom. And, and guess what? Sometimes they're wrong, Right? That's not surprising to us. We see that very clearly. But just like kids that resist and fight over something that's ultimately harmful, in both cases, they're trying to modify the authority in their life. They're trying to modify the authority and become their own autonomous God. So a little toddler God or a little teen God, right? But what we forget as adults, we do the same thing. We, we, we do like little adult God where I'm trying to, trying to construct my own little kingdom the way I want it. Any chance that we are prone to being led astray, prone to being deceived, maybe not as overtly as deny Jesus and never have anything to do with Christianity again. You're probably not going to fall for that one, right? Is there the chance, though, it's subtle and tiny, it's, it's deceptive, is there the chance that we're playing adult God Possibly activities, decisions that lead me away from deeper maturity. Possibly priorities that lead me away from deeper maturity. Possibly relationships, close relationships that lead me astray. We, we see it in kids. We see it in teens. As adults, we justify it. Now, I know what I'm doing. I know what I want. The point is, are there things leading me away from a sincere and pure devotion? That's what Paul's trying to get them to see. And he's going to go specifically into, in the church, there's even teaching. So that, that's just the world, right? 
What about when you get in the church and the person who says, here's what you should be doing to follow God, and they give you false information about that? As adults, just like the Corinthians, we are easily led astray and deceived by many distractions or false theologies, fallacies, activities, relationships. This was the central danger point for the Corinthians. And so we see Paul's getting very direct. So one last point when you think through that. If you go, man, that may be happening with me some. I want you to think through what does God do in response? What has he done in the last 10 years when you've had this habit of doing that? How does God treat you when you do that? What does he do to us? Is it crushing wrath? Or is it loving, patient grace? The Lord is gracious and slow to anger. He's rich in steadfast love. He's good even when we keep like a toddler going into relationships and to things that lead us from him. And Paul's going, you need to be led back. You're, you're being led astray just like Eve And now he goes into specifically the three big areas. And so he says, another Jesus. He goes, if someone comes proclaiming another Jesus than the one that we proclaim to you, or if it's a different spirit from the one that you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one that you accepted from us, you're putting up with it very readily, very easily. And what I would suggest, and the reason I say that this is so needed in Tulsa in particular and the American church is we, we do it and we're, we're applauding and exalting places that are doing this, another version of Jesus, a different gospel, and, and, and millions are accepting it. So missionaries and missiologists, they, they deal with what's been called syncretism. So syncretism is when you take elements of truth or elements of belief in one system um, and then you add it together with elements of truth from another system. So these, these, and these can be exclusive beliefs, right? There's different belief structures. And when you add those elements together and, and you sync those together, the new product of those things together, um, it's a completely different belief structure than what the original was. So like, for instance, let me give you a really easy example. So missionaries land on the ground. They could be working with Hindus or Buddhists or or Muslims for that matter. But let's say they're working with Hindus or Buddhists. And so they come in and they begin to share the true gospel. And they say, hey, we believe that this is God's word. Actually, there's this this God that he gave us his word and he, he sent his son to die on the cross. And so all of us have actually sinned. And so usually people don't argue with that. Um, and so in other cultures, that's very understandable. They feel a lot of guilt. They feel a lot of shame. And so they say, and actually his son died on the cross for your sins. And so Jesus is actually God. And so the people go, oh, we need to accept this Jesus. And so they're like, yes, this worked really well. And so then they, they go do that. And so they start teaching them. Like, And now we gather together and we, we, we hear more of Jesus' teaching and we learn more about following him. And they say, that's wonderful. We want to do that. And so then the missionaries are shocked and a week later or two weeks later or three weeks later when they're going through the village or the town and they see this little group of people that had accepted Christ and they're, they're still going to their little temple, to their, their Hindu temple or their Buddhist temple. And they're going in and they go, hey, hold it, hold it. We thought that you accepted Jesus. And they go, we did. And they're very gracious about it. And like, well, hold it, you're still going to your temple. They go, oh, we just added Jesus to the other gods. We worship thousands of other gods. But we love Jesus' teaching, his teaching of peace and grace and love. That, that's exactly what we want also. So they've just added on certain truths about Jesus because they're wanting to cover all their bases, right? 
And so now the missionaries see that, man, we're in a bad place. Do you see what happened? The Hindus were accommodating and adding the truths about Jesus onto their existing belief structure. So think through the Corinthian belief structure. What was their value system? Power, pride, status. So what did the guys, the the false apostles come in proclaiming? A message that talked about a Jesus who was powerful, that would make you a a winner and a powerful person. One, a Jesus of status, not a humble God who died on the cross. So their value system dictated their version of Jesus. The result is not true Christianity. It's a false version. Um, Yet it still speaks about God, about Jesus, even about Jesus on the cross. But we've modified that type of Jesus. So um, this is what Paul's confronting, this religious syncretism that's going on. Um, The Corinthians had heard and some had received the true Jesus. Some of this crowd had heard and received that true Jesus. But then there's this middle crowd who were kind of still on the fence. They were being misled very easily. They were still coming to the meetings and things. And then there were the false teachers, the third group, that were misleading and, and teaching this false truth. After Paul had come in and they'd shared this, and he calls them these super apostles, um, they had changed that to, to fit. They made Jesus and the, and the gospel to fit more with their existing values. We see this happening with us in the American church, right? Um, another Jesus, a different gospel, and a different spirit. Jesus that they wanted was powerful. Jesus that they wanted was, was of status, of high status. Do you know that there were four different big, big churches here in just our Tulsa area that for two years, they're, 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 the, the, the slogan on the website, the slogan on the billboards was winning. Our people win here. Like, that's like Osage Casino. Like, that's like, you know, the, the, the other casinos. Like, I understand that. But like, that when the, the slogan of the church or the mission statement of the church is, we win here. We are God's winners. Like, did you, did you read the last part of Jesus' life? Did you understand? Like, his life didn't get better and better and better and better and better, right? And so, yes, and so what this is called in theology is an over-actualized um, eschatology, just meaning like eschatology at the end when we're in heaven, you're trying to take the end product of what life's going to be like in heaven, and you're trying to apply it here on earth. It's an over-actualized eschatology. You're over-actualizing what's supposed to happen in the future, and you're trying to apply it here. So a guy writes a book, your best life now, not your best life later, right? So now, how does this all fit in with this syncretism? Um, if given the choice, what would most people prefer? A spokesman for God with poor communication skills but correct content, Or would people prefer a dynamic, charming spokesperson for God with dynamic communication skills but maybe wrong content? Which ones do you think people would prefer? Um, Think through this on syncretism. New York, California, so the Northwest, the Northeast, proudly, happily atheist, proudly, happily um, secular. Think it's funny that people believe the the, the Bible. Um, do you realize that in the Bible Belt, everyone 
kind of knows about Jesus, right? They know, even if people are like, oh, I'm not really, I used to go to church, whatever, but like we know, I know about Jesus. And they may have a crazy, crazy idea once you begin to hear about it, but they're like, oh, I know, I know about church and Jesus. Like I got all that down. I'm just kind of weighing my options. You know, I, I feel fine, so I'll deal with him later. And so um, in those other places, it's, it's complete lostness. But think through Tulsa, one of the most religiously syncretistic cities in the U.S., we're actually the home of some of the, the biggest um, areas of the, the word of faith movement, right? So, um, syncretism. How many different versions of Jesus are there just in Tulsa? How many different versions of the gospel? So, th- we know the prosperity gospel, right? So, it, it's more on God has promised you and obligated to give you more health and wealth and prosperity, Right? And, and so not doing away with their, I do believe that if you're living a life where you're living, you know, spending all your money on uh, horrible living or whatever that is to you and, and wasteful and crazy and chaotic and relationships, treating people poor, and you come to Christ, I believe that relationships will get better. I believe that you'll start treating people better. I, got, I believe that there's a, a grace on your life that God brings blessing in your life. I, bring, I believe that there's a, uh, a financial blessing that comes because you're just wiser in the way that you're not wasting your money and spending on stupid drugs or alcohol or cars or whatever. And so you're, you're spending your money more wisely, and so there's a blessing that comes through the wisdom of that. God's not obligated just to give you a whole bunch, though. And so in that, that we see the, the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. Also, another one that's really big is this idea, God-ordained potential. Your God-ordained potential. And you're going to see this in a second. But I want to go to this specifically under this, this God-ordained potential um, is, is very popular right now. It's extremely popular. But it fits under this idea of moral therapeutic deism. Again, um, Horton, Michael Horton brings us up. And so let's look at this. And we're going to kind of end on this, um, spend some time looking at this. So moral therapeutic deism. And I hope by the end, and I, I would challenge you to go and just listen to a whole, so think of big churches. It could be the whole U.S., could be you know, the world, it could be Tulsa, whatever. Just go to different places. And I hope that you can begin to go, oh, I, I think that I'm hearing that that internal message there. So think through this. Moral. First of all, it's a good moral decision and action for you to take. It's a good moral action. You should do this, or you should stop doing that bad behavior. Think through. Traditionalist generations. Traditionalists and boomers. Who's the guy who wrote? Best generations. Best generation ever. You know, the, the famous newscaster guy that wrote the, the greatest generation come out of World War II. Not only did we go kick some butt in some war across the world, we established ourselves. Capitalism kicked in. We pulled up our bootstraps. Anyone want to step up? Anyone want to step up? Anyone got a problem? We'll fix it right now. That was our idea. Not only financially, capitalistically, but as far as uh, the world police, Two generations, traditionalists and capital, uh, traditionalists and uh, boomers, um, they they strongly stepped up. What was what was the value system for them? Um, take moral steps. Do good actions. You can take this action step. Start doing something or stop doing something. So so do you see it's morals? Um, what were the sermons like for those crowds? They focus on you doing more. 
your commitment, your action. You may have grown up in places where every Sunday it was expected, it was kind of an A, that the sermon was bent towards you taking action steps. You need to do this better. You need to stop doing those bad things and do these things better. And again, that can go for what I started out with, just lifestyle. Your, your kids better act this way. Wives, you better be this way. There's an understanding here. Here's what men are like. Here's what women are like. Women don't do these things. Children don't ever do these things. And yet, God let every, all that get mixed up, right? Because he wanted people to experience grace. Because everyone's going to fail at that. So it was a moral good step. The sermon, focused, the sermon focused on you doing more. The split from the gospel. Where does this get off from the gospel? It focuses on how much you can do for God instead of what God has accomplished already in your place. Complete difference. Um. It's another view of Jesus, another spirit, a different gospel. Now, you may have grown, if you've come out of some churches like that, so think through, and you probably did, because if you're in your 30s or 40s or 20s, what church did you go to growing up? Your boomer mom and dad or your traditionalist grandparents? You got used to, every week, law and rules. You need to stop doing those things and, and stop doing these things. And, and I'm not saying that if all you guys are in sexual immorality and stealing and drugs and cheating on your taxes, that I'm not saying like, no, no, that's all cool. That's all cool. Now, grace just covers it all. No, no, no. But, but it's not a list, right? And so in that, um, some people walk away going like, I think he's saying that we just get to do whatever. Um, no, the focus is if you've truly understood Jesus, you wouldn't do those things. You hate sin now because sin in your place is what killed Jesus. So you should be changed by that. I thought you understood you should be transformed, Corinthians or church now. So um, in that, what happens is in those churches, God is the taskmaster and he's only law. It's a list of rules. Some of you have probably felt like, man, I, I don't feel like I can keep all that. That was moral, therapeutic. So now, not only do I feel better, not only can I keep the rule and do what you told me to do, the next thing is, therapeutically, how does it feel when you're able to do it? Feels good, doesn't it? What if I create a message where you're going to walk away feeling better about yourself and feeling really good about yourself, self-esteem? Finally. I finally beat that. I've always struggled with this. So, so think through that. It makes you feel better about yourself. If you do the action, the first one, moral, you will feel so much more victorious, energized, boosted self-esteem. So the sermons focus on powerful, emotionally charged stories that grab you by the feelings and motivate you to want change. The split from the gospel is this teaches that my subjective changing feelings of success, or some of you still struggle with failure, right? Um, or comfort or happiness, they're catering to this. Self-esteem, slothfulness, those are the focal points. The gospel teaches that God's unchanging power, unchanging desire, that he's wanting to recreate a new people through the gospel, through the spirit, not you and your actions. Not you and how much you can do for God. Not you and how, how tight you can keep your list. And guess what? My, best, my list is better than yours because I've been to seminary. There's lists I have that you don't even know. And it goes from our song lists to what version of the Bible 
to you know, the way our, the rules for our household, the, the rules for our kids. And again, that's not saying we don't have rules. You can have whatever. Uh, 8 o'clock bedtime, 12 o'clock bedtime. Um, you know, phones, no phones. Uh, all, all, whatever that is. But, but it plays out so weirdly. So that's therapeutic. It's about this feeling. Deism. So remember the idea of deism, if you studied uh, deism. So God was the clockmaker of the universe, and he created the clock. He wound it up. He stepped back, and he folded his arms, and he's letting us work it all out. What do you do to get to the attention of your dad? Anyone ever struggle with acceptance of dad, approval of dad, approval of mom? What do you do to get the acceptance of the deist God? Better be good. Better show him what you can do. God sets all that in motion, and we work it all out. Change is done through human capacity, reasoning, and the will, not the spirit. Now, not only am I doing something, so going back to moral, moral therapeutic deism, not only am I doing something, taking an action, that I walk away thinking I can do this, therapeutically, I feel really good because I think that I'm seeing change now. Finally, I'm seeing change. And you know what? Bonus sticker, God now really sees me and accepts me. God, feel so. My dad never approved of this much, but now I've got God's approval. You create and craft a sermon like that, you think people aren't going to be attracted to that? So now let's look at the practical way of the sermons. If we don't do this, not only is God really upset with you guys, if we don't go out and do these things, not only is God upset with you, but man, millions of people are going to hell. Our church, us, we're the hope for the world. Now, there's elements of truth that we've got the gospel and we've got the light, right? But do you, do you feel that press? There's 5,000 of us coming. If you don't give right now, P.O.R. in 61st, they're all going to hell. How many people at P.O.R. in 61st have you shared the gospel with us last week, this last month? So, so do you feel that? Now, should we, should, we, should we be sharing the gospel? Yeah. What is that motivated of? Because Christ changed my life. And if salvation is the greatest thing, then I want them to experience that. And that's going to make that part of my life, but not just this list that we go do. So now let's look at the practical examples. Uh, Tim Keller does a great job of breaking this down. Um, and I just kind of took in some of his little snippets and, and expanded them. So um, if you lie, you're going to be like those terrible people, those habitual liars. Um, and you're better than that. So do you see that message? It, if you lie, you'll get in trouble with God and with other people. So if my message was that, if you lie, you're going to get in trouble with people like that. And I may have a, a slide on that, yes. So think through. Here, here's what the sermon would say. So, crowd, let's not be liars. I've got three easy steps for you. Pause and pray. Power of positive words. So instead of lying to people, you just want to say something positive to people. And then you make people the emphasis. Pause and pray. Po positive words. People. You walk away with what? You leave thinking, I can do this. I think I can really change. I've got this. It's so easy to remember. I feel so happy and uplifted. I can't wait to see what benefit this brings me. I'm going to defeat lying. All I have to do, three easy steps. People want the three easy steps. 
People want to feel like they can do it. They want to feel better about themselves. And now God is pleased with that. You begin to craft it. Every week you begin to do that. How can I make that the message? If you, bad, if you have bad habits, you need to break them. God wants you to break those bad habits, right? Now notice even in sermons, again, go and listen. Bad habits, failures, weaknesses. Notice what I've done with my language. I'm not calling sin, sin. I'm just saying we all have some flaws, right? Jesus didn't die for flaws. He died for sins. So notice the language that people use. They'll change it to that. Now, we can also talk about certain things that we fail in, but, but I'm talking about sin being sin. We like the moral list. We want to feel good, and we want to appease and get God's approval. But let me ask you, if that's your walk away, where does change and transformation come from? It comes from you, not the Spirit. Who gets the subtle worship in that? God or you? Who gets marginalized in that? And guys, from books to crowds to butts and seats to budgets to buildings, this is what has captivated America. This subtle plan. In fact, Horton says, naming our captivity. How many times did God refer to himself in the Old Testament? He didn't say, I'm sending a son who's going to die on the cross. He's going to be God dying on the cross. He said, here's who I want you to know me by. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It was this picture of captivity and slavery to something and becoming a people of God with a new name, a new identity. And Horton's saying, America, you fell for it. You've been so deceived. You've been led astray. Moral, therapeutic deism. Any connection between that mindset and the 65% of the church that has never made it back from the pandemic? Hey, you know what? Jesus' bobblehead on the shelf, he's still over there. But man, I've improved my golf game by six strokes. Man, the new boat, the new whatever. And that's, that's what's happened. When you think through that, if, if you go through another one, I had lust up there. If you struggle with lust, if you struggle with greed, the sermon would be, you're, you don't want to be as bad as those pitifully sexually immoral people. Come on, you can do better than that. Insert a story in the sermon about some man who got caught in his job on the internet. He lost his job. He lost his income. He lost his house in retirement. His wife left, took the kids. Now he's one of those homeless guys considering suicide all because of lust. Wow. What a story. Grabs your feelings, questions. Do you want that to happen to you? Lead your morals. What would that feel like? So what do we do? Do you want to change? What do they come up with? Hey, let's not be lustful. Here's three steps. I can even use hand signals. Your eyes, look away. Look away. Oh, God, let me take notes. Look away to beat lust. Learn. Learn. You're thinking. Read a book. Read a blog. Go stare at nature. 
then listen. Three steps. Look away, learn, and listen. Listen to people. Become more focused on people to defeat lust. Three easy steps to defeat lust. Yes. Whether it's greed or lust or envy or selfishness, what do you leave with? I felt so horrible, horrible about this for so long. I think I can do this. Look away, learn, listen, got it. I think this is going to be life-changing. And maybe if I keep all that, God's going to give me that girl of my dreams. Maybe if, if, I, if we're able to keep this, God's going to allow us to have that new moral therapeutic deism. Who is the change agent? Who does the transformation? The person, you. Who gets the glory and the worship out of that? You do. Who's marginalized? God. And Paul's saying, I'm afraid that Satan and his cunning has deceived you and led you astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So in closing, what, what motivations are being encouraged there? Think through this. Tied to that, those messages, you're called to change your behavior out of a fear of punishment on one hand or out of pride on the other hand. So listen to this. Fear says you'll get in trouble. You better not. You better not. God's watching. You better not. Fear. Fear. Pride says you're better than that. Come on. You can have more. Be more determined. You got this. Both fear and pride are essentially self-centered, not gospel-centered. The root motivation then is be honest because it'll pay off for you. Be honest. Don't lust because it'll pay off for you. Stop being greedy. It'll pay off for you. Give more to the church. He's obligated to give. At a deeper level, what's happening there is, is it's dependent on the will to perform. It stirs up pride in the ego. At a deeper level, um, so they can experience the action and set the goal and then go achieve it, moral steps, so they can feel and think better of themselves as a good person, feelings and emotions, and then so God will bless them and accept them. You can do all these as an atheist or a Buddhist or a Hindu. It's not a message about God's redemptive plan and provision. It's a message about you. It is God's rules and your ability or inability to keep them. So after 50 or 60 years of this in the church, any correlation to the amount of dropout, any correlation to the, the number of Generation X or Millennials, that, that this huge mantra about shame now, Grandma's church, parents' church sometimes, any correlation there? You're never going to be able to keep it all together. You're never going to be able to keep the rules. The true Jesus, the true spirit, and the true gospel frees you from all of that. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. All you who are coming who are weary and heavy laden, even by the rules of religion, uh, that's not what I want for you. I'm, I'm going to take that. I will get under the cross for you. So some beautiful stuff. Heart change from the Spirit flowing out of what Christ has accomplished. That's what we've got to stick to in the gospel, the true Jesus. What's sad, the saddest aspect about all this, if you step back and go to the deeper part and you see that happening, 
The saddest part is God is like Pavlov's dog. Do you remember the Pavlov, Pavlov's dog? If I tap the button a few times, God's like a little pitiful dog coming and giving. Coming and getting the food every time I do it. He, he's like this responder who comes when I'm in control and I'm tapping the button. I tap the button by my actions, which I benefit from. I tap the button because of my feelings. And then God is obligated to be accepting. To the degree that you are shamed when you fail at keeping it will be the degree that you feel pride when you keep it. So that to the degree that you feel shame when you can't keep it all, the same degree of pride when you are able to keep it all. That's not the gospel, and that's not the true Jesus. And it makes God to be this pitiful little dog waiting for us to tap the button, waiting for us to get his approval, instead of saying that, no, Christ is the one. The Spirit is the one who's brought this to one, and the true gospel is the one. So Paul's getting them to see and trying to get us to see. Be aware of these dangers. They're very subtle, and they're manipulated by very, very um, deceitful people that say that they're the ones leading people to God. Let me read from you God's word. Let me tell you how to go live. Let me tell you what to go do. It's very subtle and dangerous. So as we close, let me pray. Father, we thank you for um, just your word, that you would be loving enough to give us clear, hard words. Thank you that it's amazing that the same message to the Corinthians still applies to us today, that we can see how the gospel has been changed, that the spirit has been changed, and that Jesus has been changed. And then there's those of us, Father, just in the church that uh, maybe have been a part of just maybe more solid churches, but, but our own desires for Christ, our love for Christ has drawn cold. We ask for you to help and encourage those hearts. Thank you that if we are treating you like Pavlov's dog, you are still a God of grace. You don't come and crush us. You don't come and kill us. You don't come and punish us. You lavish grace. You're slow to anger. You're faithful and steadfast love. We thank you for that, God. Thank you that we don't have to walk in shame or guilt. Thank you that you are the one who has supplied all of the rescue for us. We pray that you'd help us to see through those things, to help people around our lives to see through those. Would you continue to purify your bride? Help us to be devoted. We thank you that your word calls us to that and your spirit enables us to that. We thank you that Christ frees us and the gospel frees us for that type of living. Would you help us to build our lives on that truth, not not our own truth. In your name we pray, amen. Amen.